appetite for self-destruction. Hi, I'm your host, Drew Wilson. Welcome to episode 57 of the Freezing Official Podcast for July 2023. Here are your top three headlines. Government bargains, but platforms set to end support for Canadian news links in Canada. Canadian media companies brace for the consequences of their actions as support for news links sets to end. And we wrap up our special coverage of the Bill C-18 Senate hearing special. Before I get into the top stories, I wanted to mention that I did release another vlog this month. It was vastly different than what I normally post, but I thought it was worth talking about. In a nutshell, I was at a Subway restaurant and I witnessed what looked like an extremely crummy day for one of the employees. So I did what I could to make her day less crummy. It was completely by chance that I happened to be there, and I am glad I was able to make someone's bad day take a quick turn for the better. You can check out the video where I talk about it on the website or on YouTube. Now to the top stories. The link tax situation in Canada is looking dire right now. Already Meta announced that it will be dropping Canadian news links in Canada in response to the link tax law. Bill C-18 was already passed into law and is now known as the Online News Act. All of the predictions of this turning out bad for the Canadian news sector were seemingly destined to come true. All of this despite the insistence from the mainstream media and supporters insisting that things will just magically work out in the end. This because they have believing hard enough and magical thinking on their side. Well, the Canadian government was attempting to do a little bit more than magical thinking for once. They wound up holding last-ditch talks with both Meta and Google. This in an apparent effort to try and salvage the situation. It didn't take long for word to come down that those talks failed. Meta responded by saying that they weren't even in talks with the government and said that they are still moving forward with blocking Canadian news links in Canada. As word came down that talks fell through, the Canadian government said that all options were on the table. Specifically, they were contemplating a massive news media bailout. Shortly after that, Google announced that it would be dropping news links in Canada as well. The announcement signaled that the talks by the Canadian government has fully collapsed. While observers were decidedly not surprised by this outcome, Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez said that he was surprised by the announcement. Arguably, he is probably one of the only people in this entire debate that could possibly be surprised by any of this. This after how he is seemingly barely aware of his own surroundings at the best of times. Google, in making this announcement, offered details of what specifically will be blocked from their services. Essentially, any content that is considered eligible for compensation in the legislation will be subject to such blocks. The details mirror what Meta has said when they announced that they will be blocking Canadian news links in Canada. If it's captured in the Online News Act, it is out of Google services. Period. This includes Search and Google News Showcase. The fallout continued shortly after the announcement. What critics have been saying all along is that if the platforms drop news links, then existing deals that were inked earlier would also be imperiled. After all, if you are no longer allowing news content on your platforms, what's the point of those deals? I mean, if news isn't even going to be present on those platforms in the first place, why have those deals? Well, right on cue, Meta announced that it would be cancelling existing publisher deals exactly as critics had warned would happen. As that happened, the Canadian government grew increasingly desperate and apparently requested the US government to intervene to help out. 
yes, the same U.S. government who have been sharply criticizing the Canadian government over the very legislation they didn't like in the first place. This because legislation targets American businesses, eliciting talks of leveling trade sanctions against Canada in response to this bill, Bill C-11, and the digital services tax. To the surprise of absolutely no one paying attention, the U.S. declined to intervene to help Canada salvage the situation. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> Panic continued to set in as the government scrambled to come up with a plan B. The same plan B that they have been asked about by the media and senators alike for the better part of a year now. Observers seemingly correctly pointed out that there is no plan B and that talks of all options being on the table was little more than bluster since the Canadian government really doesn't have any options left at this point. There is no provision in the bill compelling platforms to host news links. There is no existing law that will help the government out here. There is no international law that can be worked to better the situation. And other governments have concluded that this is a mess Canada has to deal with and are therefore choosing not to intervene. In light of that, it seemed like the Canadian government began running around like chickens with their heads cut off. This was plainly obvious when the minister decided to go on an international media tour and proceed to badmouth the platforms. You know, because when you want to attract a multinational corporation to this country, the first thing you do is to proclaim as loudly as possible that they are a terrible company. On the international media circuit, Rodriguez falsely claimed that emergency alerts will also be blocked in the process, putting people's lives in danger. Google responded to the false allegations by pointing out that SOS alerts will still be available after the news link drop happens. Good job, Rodriguez. Defaming the platforms worked out real well in getting them back to this country. From there, supporters of the bill decided to help by launching personal attacks against critics of the bill. You know, because shooting the messenger is always a winning strategy. Mixed in with the personal attacks, however, was the disinformation campaign that said that critics were wrong because Bill C-18 has nothing to do with news links. This while posting links to the bill. The misleading campaign was designed to prey on those who are less knowledgeable about the bill. It basically invited people to go to the text of the bill and use Control F and do a word search for link. Indeed, you won't find any word matches to the word link. The problem is that just because link isn't in the bill specifically doesn't necessarily mean that the bill has nothing to do with links. The bill, instead, uses entirely different language to describe a news link. Specifically, it uses the phrase making available, among other things, to describe the act of linking. For proof, I'll quote section 2 of the bill. Making available of news content. 2. For the purposes of this act, news content is made available if a. the news content or any portion of it is reproduced or b. access to the news content or any portion of it is facilitated by any means including an index, aggregation, or ranking of news content. So, not only is this about news links, but also a host of other things as well. A search engine can make a list of news organizations like CBC, CGV, and Global News. That act alone would constitute making available, no links required. So, yes, this bill is not only about news links, but it is actually much worse than that. Shortly after I published the article debunking these claims, the disinformation campaign ceased. I'm guessing they knew they were caught. <laughs> the Canadian government continued to run around in circles in panic trying to improvise a solution to the mess they got themselves into. So, in an effort to woo the platforms back, they decided that financial retaliation was in order. 
Really, the only thing missing at this point is Sideshow Bob shouting that the platforms will live to regret this. In an announcement, Rodrigo said that the Canadian government has chosen to suspend a $10 million advertising deal with Meta. This under the reasoning that they couldn't, in good conscience, continue to advertise on a platform that allegedly won't pay journalists for the work that they do. I mean, that was never the job of the platforms, but rather the people employing the journalists, but that's beside the point. While $10 million sounds like a lot of money, this is meta we are talking about. According to one statistic, in the year ending on March 31st, 2023, meta platforms generated $117.346 billion. There are roughly 8,760 hours in a year. So this works out to meta generating about, on average, $13,395,662.10 per hour. So, hilariously, the suspension works out to less than one hour of revenue for Meta. Yes, the move was that meaningless in the end. While Meta didn't officially respond to the development, you can bet the response went along the lines of, Oh no! Anyway, last week... Of course, Bill C-18 Apologists will probably, at this point, insist that this is less about money, even though the whole debate, you know, is about money, and more about sending a message. Heck, this whole thing is about more than just one deal. This is about trying to get Canadian businesses on board and leading by example. This is about riling up Canadians and creating a massive boycott of the platforms, ensuring that they just have no choice but to come to heel or come crawling back and begging for forgiveness. On the surface, that seemed to be Justin Trudeau's strategy when talking to reporters. In one exchange with a reporter, Trudeau said that this was a fight for democracy and compared this fight to World War II. Yeah, he was really that unhinged at that moment. Here's a clip of that exchange. I would like to go back to the Meta file. Many countries want to follow on Canada's step. Canada is becoming a test case. Do you think that Canada will pay the price because the tech giant will want to make an example of Canada? I would say yes. This is what they want to do, make an example of us. They are worried about what will happen here in Canada. We're saying no right now. We think that Canadians must have access to quality news, quality information. They have to be paid for that. Facebook decided that Canada was a small country, small enough in that they could reject our, our uh, asks. They made the wrong choice by deciding to attack Canada. We want to defend democracy. This is what we're doing across the world, such as supporting Ukraine. This is what we've done during the Second World War. This is what we're doing every single day in the United Nations. And I know that Canadians will not be bullied by billionaires in the U.S., billionaires that are impacting negatively our democracy. We will have a strong stance with that. We're not alone. Other countries are looking closely at what we're doing 
We will not accept this type of threats. The threats by Meta. Our democracies are threatened everywhere around the world. And if we're let, letting go, we will lose. That's the reason why we have a good consensus within Parliament amongst the Bloc, the Liberal Party and the NDP. We will keep a firm stance. That's too bad that the Conservative Party is aligned once more with the web giant and with the US, the American billionaires, instead of defending democracy. Yeah, he really thinks that this is a fight for democracy. Never mind the fact that this was an obvious response from the platforms that Rodriguez admitted that this is a private business decision. No, this is a fight for democracy. The whole answer made absolutely no sense, but I suppose when you live in a reality bubble long enough, you start honestly believing that everyone thinks exactly like you do and conclude that this was a brilliant genius move. Well, since this is all about messaging and leading by example, naturally the media asked if the Liberal Political Party will also fall within lockstep with the actual government's decision to suspend advertising with Meta. You know, we're starting a boycott here and this is about collective will to force the platforms to change their minds. This while saying that this is about morality and democracy and, well, messaging in the first place. The Liberal Party responded to questions of whether or not they would also suspend political advertising by basically saying, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Yes, the Liberal Party themselves refused to suspend advertising to the platforms, undermining the very boycott they were trying to start. The move ultimately signaled that the boycott was dead on arrival. Faced with the boycott that was disintegrating right at the starting block, the mainstream media, one of the only remaining voices still in a cult-like support of the legislation, decided to go at it alone and join in on the whole idea of suspending advertising dollars. Specifically, the Toronto Star announced that it would suspend advertising. While the Toronto Star wasn't exactly forthcoming with how much advertising they were doing in the first place, no doubt knowing full well that the dollar figure would only add to the humiliation of this boycott, we decided to do a little digging in the Facebook transparency reports. What we found was that up to that point, the Toronto Star spent, optimistically, $3,292 so far this year. Now, using the figure of Meta's $117.346 billion, and assuming that there are roughly 31,536,000 seconds in a year, we can calculate that, on average, Meta makes roughly $3,721.02 in revenue every second. Yeah, the spending doesn't even break the one-second barrier of Meta revenue. Again, Meta didn't formally respond, but you can probably bet it was along the lines of, Oh no! Anyway, last week... Worth pointing out in all this is the fact that there was a growing rift between the Liberal Party of Canada and the media as a result of these developments. Not a rift you'd think you would see in this debate, but there was certainly a crack forming here. Again, Bill C-18 supporters will insist that this is a messaging thing and leading a boycott of that evil Mark Zuckerberg and Meta in general. Well, as you know, Meta this month launched Threads, which was said to be yet another rival to Twitter. Astonishingly, not only were Liberal Party MPs happily joining that platform, 
but also the large media organizations in an effort to share their news links on the new platform. Not only that, but both were loudly cheering on Mark Zuckerberg, helping him build a whole new platform in the process. What? I thought both were trying to lead a boycott against Meta, sending the Zuck a message that Meta won't be able to get away with their actions. Further, all of their services are going to get boycotted until they change their minds on Bill C-18. What happened to that? Now, for context, in looking back at the timestamps of these reports, I really wondered just how long this boycott lasted. It went from July 5th to July 10th. This boycott lasted a grand total of five days before going through a total collapse. <laughs> grand opening, grand closing. With no real legal options left and a failed boycott on their hands, the government went back to the drawing board, frantically trying to come up with something else to get them out of the hole they dug themselves in. I mean, this sort of planning should have happened long before the bill became law in the first place, but here we are. In the next masterstroke genius move, the government issued what they called clarifying language on the Online News Act. By clarifying language, they apparently meant completely watering down the law now that it is, well, law. This in a bid to bring the platforms back to discussions. Among the points in the clarifying language include a liability cap and recognition of non-monetary contributions. These are both points that have been called for by platforms during the legislative process, but both points the platforms didn't get. Despite the increasing desperation on the part of the government to make something work, there was a lot of skepticism as to whether or not the platforms would take it and come back to negotiate. After all, these changes to the legislation are happening on the fly and suggest that the laws are very malleable to whatever the government aims to do. Today, they may say that there are contribution caps, but tomorrow might be a different story. It all depends on the whims of the government of the day. This makes it a very difficult proposition for the platforms to accept. University law professor Michael Geist wrote, Even if the government manages to find a compromise with Google, it seems unlikely that there will be one with Meta. Meta has left no doubt that it will not pay for links and that news has limited value on its platform. With the government suspending its advertising on the platform, even as the Liberal Party continues to advertise an MP's race to create Threads accounts, it is hard to see a road back for Meta. There's no two ways about it. The government's credibility on this legislation is at rock bottom. The fact that the government is showing that there is lots of wiggle room with this bill, it makes certainty very unlikely. The platforms have noted how this legislation creates lots of uncertainty and the government's clarifying language really only adds to it, even if the government is starting to tip their hands towards the platforms in a desperate bid to salvage the situation. Buried in all this is another comment made by the Canadian government. The comment said, Obligations under the Online News Act will come into effect no later than 180 days after June 22, 2023, the day Bill C-18 received royal assent. Running the math, that puts the latest date of the Online News Act coming into force to December 19th of this year, just before Christmas. While there is some fuzzy dates involved as different parts are to come into force at different times, it looks like that is the date set up by the government. This is critical because the platforms made it very clear that the news links blocking will occur before the bill comes into force. So between now and December 19th, this is going to happen. At least we have a better idea on that front, anyway. 
While the platforms contemplated the new offer from the government, an Angus Reid poll came out with how Canadians are reacting to all this. With Bill C-18 supporters insisting that all these pushes were about messaging and getting the country behind the government on this, the numbers released by the polling firm were quite brutal for those supporters. The poll asked Canadians whether or not they agree with the statement the federal government should back down and rescind Bill C-18. 40% of Canadians responded that they either agree or strongly agree with that statement. Only 26% said that they either strongly disagree or disagree with that statement. 25% said that they weren't sure or couldn't say. The polling firm tried to find differentiation between age groups for this opinion, but generally didn't find any. Only 20% agreed that the platform should pay for linking. What was interesting, however, was that Canadians are generally on board with the idea that platforms wield too much power over the internet. Across age groups, the firm found that around 83% of Canadians agreed that the platforms have too much power while only 7% disagree with that notion. So Canadians are on board with trying to solve the problem of excessive power by the platforms, but generally disagree with the approach taken with Bill C-18. Also, generally speaking, 63% of Canadians said that they are concerned with the cutoff of news links with only mild variation between political parties. That's a fear that is very much justified under the circumstances. What's more, 66% of Canadians agreed that Bill C-18 is going to hurt the smaller news players the most, while only 11% disagree with the notion. The numbers are absolutely stark. The polling runs totally counter to the messaging campaigns by both government and the media. So if there are those who think that all this noise made by the government is about messaging and getting Canadians on board, then this poll shows that the messaging was an absolute failure. After that, Meta responded to the new deal offered by the government. In response, Meta basically said, The response is horrible for the government. It means more pressure is being placed on Google to simply follow suit. Google hasn't said which way they would go after the government capitulated, but the other large player sucked into this debate has already walked away. Now, a large part of the Bill C-18 debate has to do with foreign interference. Specifically, lobbyists from Australia have been pushing hard for this bill. Speculation is that someone behind News Corp, possibly Rupert Murdoch, is pushing for this. But it's hard to pin this on parties that did not make actual physical appearances. One of those foreign lobbyists that did make an appearance is Rod Sims, former chair of the Australia's ACCC. Well, in the midst of Bill C-18's collapse, he chimed in offering advice to try and help salvage the situation. Keep in mind, this is the guy the government and supporters relied on heavily in getting this bill this far into the process. So, what did he have to say that will show him swooping in and saving the day? He said, The Australian NMBC says that if Google and Meta decide not to show news on their platforms, then they cannot show any news at all from anywhere. In this context, it would mean that if Google and Facebook remove news, it would not just be news focused on a Canadian audience, but all news from anywhere in the world, however targeted. That is, they cannot discriminate against Canadian-focused publishers. The Canadian government has the power to address this point through regulation, and I would encourage them to do so. The comments were stunning. In his mind, in order to save the news, we must censor the news. Not just any news, but all of the news. Seriously, Rod, 
if you're going to say stupid stuff like that, you might as well just butt out of this debate now. You've caused enough damage to this country as it is. So please, just leave so we can have a chance at figuring out how to clean up the mess you partly caused. As for those who have listened to him up to this point, I think this made it painfully clear that he is about the last person you want to consult with in this debate. Meanwhile, the damage caused by Bill C-18 is set to ramp up potentially sooner rather than later. Facebook began running ads warning Canadians that news links to Canadian sources will be dropping soon. The ads read, in part, To comply with the Online News Act, we're ending news availability on Facebook and Instagram in Canada. To comply with federal legislation, viewing and posting news content will no longer be possible on Facebook and Instagram in Canada. The only way we can reasonably comply with this legislation is to end news availability. The Online News Act is based on the incorrect premise that social media companies benefit unfairly from news content shared on our platforms. The reverse is actually true. News outlets voluntarily share content on social media to expand their audiences and help their bottom line. There were others, but you get the gist of it. It's still unclear when the move will start happening on Facebook, but the speculation is that the move will happen sooner rather than later as a result of the appearances of these ads. Well, evidently, in an effort to be upfront with Canadians, Meta also tried to run advertising on the traditional media ad networks. The media responded by refusing to run them. The refusal is in the context that the media companies themselves have been running multiple defamation campaigns against the platforms for some time now. Whether it was the notorious Mark Zuckerberg wanted for theft of news campaign, the so-called disappearing headline campaign, the coordinated coverage to include heaps of disinformation about the bill, spiking editorials from experts that dared to offer any criticism towards the bill at all, and more, the media has been less about journalism and more about propaganda and messaging. Indeed, it is well within the media company's right to refuse to run the ads, but in the context of their controversial behavior of the last couple of years, it just makes the traditional media outlets look substantially worse when they refuse to hear from the other side of the debate, even if it is paid for messages. Finally, this month, we explored a rather interesting criticism in the Bill C-18 debate. Specifically, that criticism amounts to, who gets their news on Facebook anyway? It's easy to dismiss this criticism as weird or odd, but add in all the evidence in this debate, this criticism actually makes a whole lot of sense. I wrote a detailed article explaining all the ins and outs, but the short version of it is this. In an overwhelming amount of studies, only a tiny fraction of users actually use Facebook for getting the news. It's a similar story with Google. Google, for their part, testified that only about 2% of search queries are actually news related. So if you are one of those people who don't use platforms to search for news, congratulations, you are normal. The flip side is that although this is a borderline meaningless number of users for the platforms, that still ends up being more than sufficient for the news publishers to stay afloat. So for them, they get a majority of their traffic from the platforms. It's a scale thing. So that's how you get people wondering who uses platforms for news while at the same time, news publishers end up depending so heavily on the platforms in the first place. While that was largely the government side of the debate, there is also the perspective from the news organizations themselves. The situation really isn't any better from that angle. This month kicked off with a story really showing the blatant hypocrisy of mainstream news organizations on this debate. Most of them are huge supporters of Bill C-18. 
The same legislation that will completely rip apart the entire news sector. Yeah, it really is an industry-wide effort to shoot themselves in the foot here. Well, one of those organizations that was actively cheerleading the legislation was Bell Media. All this, of course, under the premise that this is about supporting CanCon and bolstering local journalism. Well, the ink barely dried on the new law before Bell filed paperwork asking the CRTC to defund local journalism and reduce CanCon quotas. The controversial filing said that Bell is asking that the following be eliminated from the conditions of broadcasting. A requirement for English language stations in large markets to broadcast 14 hours of local programming per week. A requirement for French language stations to broadcast local programming each week, 5 hours in Montreal and Quebec, 2.5 hours at other stations. Requirements for locally reflective news in English each week, 6 hours in large markets, 3 hours in small markets and special lower quotas for smaller or regional stations. A requirement for five hours of locally reflective news each week on Nouveau's Montreal station. A requirement for Bell, as a group, to spend 11% of CTV, CTV2's gross revenues on locally reflective news and 5% of Nouveau's gross revenues. Yeah, you want to know what Bell's real commitment to local journalism is? There it is in plain language. So much for telling Canadian stories. Critics blast the filing, suggesting that this is part of a much broader effort by Bell to gut local journalism outlets and TV news stations. One supporter of the new law, meanwhile, has admitted that things may not turn out as well as they expect. French news organization Le Devoir published an article talking about the legislation. In the article, they note that the platforms were never actually stealing their content. Instead, the organization freely and willfully shared links to their news organization's content. This is something we have been saying all along about news links. It is, quite frankly, refreshing that at least one supporter is finally plainly saying this fact. Critics note that what they also said suggests that they might have some buyer's remorse to the Online News Act. According to a translation posted by Norman Spector, the article said, The media have won against Google and Meta, but at what cost? This may all be a big meta bluff, as in Australia. We will know soon enough. With the rise of AI to generate content on the cheap and to power search engines, the global fatigue with news content, the radical transformation of news consumption habits, the possibility that Google, and above all, meta, can do without journalistic content to achieve their ends is less far-fetched than it once seemed. While critics have said that this is the outcome that was destined to happen all along, this is a pretty big admission from the news organization support of the then legislation. I mean, we are on a one-way trip now with the outcome of platforms dropping news links being seemingly a sure thing, so little can be done about it now, but at least there are news organizations that are admitting that this might actually be a possibility in the first place. As panic continued to set in in the media sector, one development happened this month that really shook the confidence of supporters of the legislation. Post Media and the Toronto Star announced that there is an intention to merge the two publishing giants. The move was supposed to be a survival tactic for both. Some of the speculation was that the business uncertainty surrounding the Online News Act may have contributed to the talks happening in the first place. No one seemed happy with these merger talks, as observers spoke about how this development represents witnessing the destruction of the news sector in real time. Since the report, the talks have broken apart as the merger is now seemingly no longer moving ahead. 
While Saboras did launch an attack on critics warning of the consequences of the legislation, their false claims that Bill C-18 has nothing to do with links wasn't the only false claim they pushed. This month, Bill C-18 supporters also launched a separate attack on critics with equally bogus claims. The claims were that critics of the legislation never offered alternative solutions to Bill C-18. <laughs> if you listen to this podcast for any length of time, you are probably laughing at this point. This is because the claim doesn't even pass the laugh test. The truth is that critics offered numerous alternative solutions to Bill C-18. This includes various fund models that can redirect revenue from platforms to news publishers. Others have suggested looking at how publicly funded news organizations, namely the CBC, get financial compensation from the government. Offering more tax breaks for news organizations was also floated. Many of these alternatives were offered to the government by numerous supporters and critics of the legislation. The problem wasn't that there weren't alternatives offered. The problem was that many people offered alternative solutions and the government flatly ignored them all, insisting that link taxes was the only solution available and anyone saying otherwise are just shills for big tech. Either way, myth thoroughly debunked. As time progressed over the course of the month, panic among publishers continued to grow. Following the reports of Facebook turning down the government's capitulated offer, the Canadian Media Directors Council published an open letter, twisting the events for all it's worth. In the process, they called on advertisers to pledge 25% of advertising revenue to local journalism outlets. It's not because the legislation is about to blow up the entire sector. No sorry. This is about uh, making an impact. Yeah, that's the ticket. Making an impact. Otherwise, nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> the damaging effects of Bill C-18 was also being felt by multiple news organizations as well. Multiple people working in news organizations have begun noticing that they have been completely blocked on Instagram. The blocks appear to be part of the larger test by Meta, which begun earlier on. As a result, Pablo Rodriguez did get some angry messages from journalists. Faced with the impending disaster that just about everyone predicted, Publishers just begging advertisers to keep throwing money at them wasn't the only tactic they employed. In addition to that, the larger publishing organizations were also begging readers to download their app and bookmark their web pages. When was the last time you heard of a campaign to bookmark a website? Among the publishers begging users to find alternatives to read them are the Toronto Star and the Global Mail. It's unclear if those campaigns will really change the situation much for publishers. The testing on Instagram continued as well. The list of affected news organizations kept growing partway through the month. Two more news organizations blocked from Instagram were CPAC and Press Progress. CPAC whined that Meta is trying to turn off your access to Canadian democracy. This despite the fact that the large news organizations got themselves into this situation in the first place. Meanwhile, Luke Lebrun responded to the blocking by saying, we never asked anyone to compensate us for sharing links to our website. We only asked readers who value what we do to support our work. People like that, well, I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for. If you never asked for this legislation and had no problem with how things worked with sharing news links, then got stuck with the situation anyway, yeah, they clearly didn't deserve this. As we get closer to whenever Meta and Google decide to pull that switch, the situation is only going to get even uglier. 
Finally, the large media outlets continue to run misleading and factually incorrect news articles about the Online News Act. One method that the mainstream media misleads its readers is through fake explainer articles. These aren't anything new as they are part of a broader campaign to mislead the general public. But since the topic of trust in the media being at all-time lows was brought up at the time, I figured that I'd fact-check one of these recently published articles. The one I happened to dig up was published on CTV, and while it wasn't the worst I've ever seen, it was bad enough that it required a full rewrite as opposed to critiquing it. Yes, there was some really basic facts that the article got right, like the legislation passing into law, and that the bill is coming into force later this year. Beyond that, though, the factual inaccuracies and outright misleading takes made the article beyond repair. For one, in the section asking about what the criticism of the legislation was, all the journalists did for the most part was pull two tweets from conservative leader Pierre Polyev talking about censorship in the media. Then the author slapped a quote at the end talking about worry of what happens when platforms block news links. The author then called it a day. That alone was an epic fail on the journalist's part. The article got worse. For one, it claimed that Bill C-18 requires news links to be carried on social media. There is no such provision in the new law. Additionally, it blamed Google and Facebook exclusively for falling revenue even though there is clear evidence of other shifts in this industry contributing significantly to the losses of revenue in journalism. Examples include flyers being distributed by the postal system, coupons being replaced by rewards programs, consolidation of the industry contributing to a persistent decline in the quality of journalism, and numerous other problems that have nothing to do with the platforms. Also, it devoted a section to who is affected by the bill. In answering that, the author completely forgot to answer that question within that section. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. So, I preface the full rewrite by pointing out that CTV is far from the only ones guilty of spreading disinformation on the Online News Act. It just happened to be the closest article I had on hand at the time. This when I did some digging at the time on just how bad journalism is on this topic among the larger outlets. Mainstream media pumping out disinformation on the Online News Act has been an industry-wide problem for about three years now. What's more, there aren't very many signs saying that this will stop anytime soon. This leaves us smaller players like us to continually set the record straight. On the actual rewrite, I kept most of the basic structure. Some of that structure made no sense because it only served to push propaganda rather than fact. I did add one section that did add some context to the wider debate. After that, I pretty much wrote the article from the ground up. I noted things like how criticisms came from all corners of the debate, I cited government figures, noted various studies, quoted experts, and generally made the article much more factual. This while, at the same time, trying to distill all down into something that was reasonably easy to read. I don't expect this to change things in the debate, but it was an interesting exercise in highlighting just how bad mainstream journalism is with the Online News Act. Also, hey, you get another fact-based article thrown into the noise to offer clarity of what is really going on. So, it wasn't a total waste of time and effort. Finally, we have a conclusion to share with you in our Bill C-18 Senate hearing special. I know, the hearings ended last month. What are you still doing offering analysis? Well, although I fell behind in these hearings, I still wanted a complete record of these hearings anyway. 
FreezeNet was the only website offering comprehensive coverage of these hearings, and just because no one else was doing this doesn't necessarily mean I should just slack off and not bother. This is about being able to put out a high-quality product and providing you with the best coverage I am capable of. You know what? As a result, you got full high-quality coverage of the entire hearings, gavel to gavel. I'm proud of being able to offer that kind of quality coverage, and from the sound of things, you got a lot out of these hearings as well. So I just wanted to thank you for being with me throughout this huge writing journey from the beginning to end. This month, we carried on with the first segment of Hearing 9. This hearing was much more painful than I expected. When First Nations people spoke during the Senate hearings on Bill C-11, their appearances were really interesting and quite insightful, adding a really neat and thought-provoking perspective on the Bill C-11 hearings. That was a real highlight of those hearings. My hope was that there might have been the same interesting perspective to add insight to the overall debates on the Bill C-18 hearings. That didn't happen. Instead, we got two organizations that really struggled to even comprehend just how Bill C-18 even works. Here is Senator Julie Miville Deschain asking the questions and Jean LaRose of Dad and Sivinet answering. I think you uh, covered what I was thinking about quite well. I want to talk about your financial health and your business model because... Uh, the Dan Sinunivut and ATM, you are concerned about the negotiations, probably for financial reasons. So could you explain, uh, Mr. LaRose, because you are very familiar with your financial model, how that would work. Thank you very much. The Dadan Sinunivut was created... Um, out of activities at ATP and f that began in about 2008 we had production operations for a P for our activities in one in Toronto and uh, a music company revenue canada looked at APTN's activities and said you are a charitable organization and you have created this for-profit company and that doesn't fit in with our framework for what a charitable organization should do. So APTN severed the two and created the Dan Sinuvidu to make a for-profit company out of it. And a radio station? Well, the radio station provides news and uses advertising. And, of course, the pandemic was not very helpful to us. As you know, all radio stations had a lot of difficulty in that regard, and ours as well. But this, the only objective that we have in our interest in the bill is that we are concerned about this, that we don't have any journalists. So you don't have any journalists? No. We became a music station because that allowed us to survive. 
until our revenues increased again to be able to rehire staff. But if you don't have any journalists, how can you negotiate under Bill C-18? Well, if we had financial support, then we could hire journalists. The goal is to create an environment so that we can hire journalists. If we partner with Indigenous, which is also looking to hire journalists, then we can extend this online availability in Alberta and elsewhere because we want to extend our activities across the country. We're looking for sustainability for small organizations that are trying to establish themselves and succeed, especially in the local environment. And so what we want to do is to represent our communities and our we need the resources necessary to be able to succeed and in TV, but also in the radio environment, we need support to be able to improve the quality and have journalists in various places that will provide content. So when it comes to news, uh, that's the situations. We're not trying to have uh, morning, noon, and night programming. Ouch. Answers really don't get a whole lot more painful than that. In summary, the organization said that they don't even have journalists. A major premise of the bill is supposedly about an exchange of value, where if your news links appears on social media, then you get paid for it. As ridiculous as that sounds. This organization suggests that they would get money so that they could start up news infrastructure. Not how the bill works. You're not getting money for future journalism. It's about links that exist on the platforms today. It really put into question what LaRose was even doing there in the hearing in the first place. His organization, right off the bat, isn't qualified due to a complete lack of news in the first place. At any rate, an absolutely brutal and painful appearance. We then moved on to Hearing 9, Segment 2. This was largely a panel of lobbyists where a third news organization happened to be there, which was Benwood of All Nova Scotia. Now, one thing that had occurred to me was the fact that David Scott of The Logic seems to be able to have all the appearances in the world with these hearings. He claims to be a small independent news organization, yet mysteriously has all the access to the government in the world. At the same time, Scott is continuing to push all of this disinformation about Bill C-18 in lockstep with the largest publishers. Like, what, is the logic funded by post-media or something? Well, funny story. Here's Wood answering a question by Senator Pamela Wallen. Uh, I'd like to go to, uh, to Mr. Wood just on this question, because for those of us who were journalists in an earlier life, um, it's, uh, it's troubling that we see journalism. I mean, journalism has always been dependent on others, uh, the kindness of, of others to exist, whether it was the advertising revenues that came from the newspaper or the television station or whatever. 
Um, then going to uh, direct government funding of journalism, I found very, very troubling. And now uh, forcing these deals between journalists, quote-unquote, uh, news operations and big tech doesn't give me any more peace. Um, you seem to have found a model that you think could work, which is sort of back to the future. Let subscribers decide. Um, if you have an audience to support your content, you will succeed. If you don't, you won't. Yeah, thanks very much for that. That's a, that's a great um, question. Uh, I guess what I should start off by saying is I, I don't support um, government subsidies for private news organizations. I'm suggesting uh, this uh, support um, to address the uneven playing field that I believe this legislation could create, um, given that uh, there's so much uncertainty in this legislation. We, we don't know if Facebook and Google are going to pull out of news in this country. We don't know if there's going to be major delays for small publishers to get deals. Uh, we don't know if they'll get good deals or bad deals because while many um, uh, news organizations from Australia spoke to you last week, they weren't able to describe any of the deals that they had, had uh, made. Um, but the, the targeted supports will de-risk this period of one or two years after this legislation comes out for smaller players, small and medium-sized players. We actually spoke out against the Canadian journalism labor tax credit when it was first proposed. That's on the record but we had to take it to remain competitive. And now I feel it's a bit of deja vu. I'm, I'm in this position again where this legislation is coming down. It looks, it looks like it's coming. And uh, this targeted support for smaller, um, diverse voices in the, in the media landscape could, could help um, avoid some of the increased concentration amongst some of the largest players. So I just wanted to get that on the record. And just in terms of transparency, and I know that you share this on your website, but um, a minority um, shareholder in, in the logic is post media, and it's a, it's a material investment. And I know that you're here as part of um, a, a, a cross section of the new emerging media players, uh, but you do have that investment uh, from post media. I just thought that was something to note. Ooh, busted. That, however, really explains a lot, though. In response, Scott's eyes were darting around the room as he appeared flustered by the sudden rush of transparency. The hearing moved on and Senator Jim Quinn asked a completely different question, but Skok was apparently desperate to try and push back against the transparency. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you for appearing before us today. This has been very interesting, and uh, uh, one of the things I worry about is uh, local news, you know, how that's going to be sustained. I see this bill as a step in helping to ensure that local news will continue to have a space. But some of the things that have been said here, I'm just a little bit uh, confused on it. One is that, uh, you know, Mr. Skog, during your, uh, you listed the three, the three benefits, and uh, one was, the, the second one was the, that licensing deals are negotiated and that uh, it'll help to avoid legal action downstream. But during that, you also said that info is lifted without permission from time to time, and I assume that's for everybody. I'm not sure if Mr. Wood's organization has had news content lifted, but it goes to the other premise that people should be paid for their work. And uh, so there's that part of it. And then the other part that we've talked about is the competitiveness of your business. Journalists are in different organizations and post-media may be in a better position to hire people from, uh, from smaller folks, making it more difficult for them to maybe find people. Um, 
but then we also talked about the fear of disproportionate distribution of whatever the funds are um, to big guys versus little guys. And yet, we talk about uh, deals and fair deals, and uh, this is a question for everybody. Well, I mean, a deal in, in, a, in a competitive environment, why would you want to have, well, if you, why would anybody want to have their commercial deal shared with others who they're competing against? And I'm just a little confused of coming out of a business environment. I'm just a little confused by that. And maybe each of you could comment and help uh, help me have a better understanding. Yeah, so I, I'm happy, you know, it, with the question of transparency, as I said, right now for us, it's about getting the deal, getting this legislation passed through. Um, if they are commercial deals, great. I think the backstop is if it goes to the CRTC, that's when it becomes another issue. I just want to address uh, the, the comments about post-media. We have several strategic investors uh, because we believe in a news ecosystem uh, that is small players, large players, some of which are, yes, post-media is an investor in the logic, but so is Tiny Media, which I believe is part of Jeanette Agassin's group, uh, as well as Jessica Lesson and the information out of San Francisco. So uh, I'm the controlling shareholder of the company, and as my mom likes to say, nobody tells me what to do. Um, so there's no worry about that. Um, but really, it is about the larger ecosystem. And I do think that a loss of small publisher in a small town community is a loss for all of us because from my perspective, running a business, where am I going to recruit uh, my next generation of talent from? Yeah, we're funded by Post Media. So what? We get funding from everywhere. It's no big deal. I'm my own boss. So there. I mean, look at the Taiyi. They get funding from big publishing too. Everyone gets funding from the large media companies. This happens all the time, so it's no big deal. We're all legit and totally not influenced by the others in any way. Legit, I tell you. Legit. <laughs> Just a little bit frazzled by this, are we? Way to implicate the Taiyi in the process there, dude. <laughs> from there, we made it to the final hearing. In hearing 10, second one, we got to hear from the parliamentary budget officer. Present was Yves Giro, along with Roland Keku Tissot. In the hearing, Giro commented that Tissot did excellent work on putting together the report. Now, I kind of half expected that to just be standard professional courtesy and nothing too noteworthy. Yet, when she later spoke, explaining how she came up with the figures that she did, it quickly became clear that she was absolutely brilliant when doing her research. Now, keep in mind, the report was released long ago when Bill C-18 was not even released. So how did they come up with figures that were so accurate? The answer was actually quite genius. Here's Senator Wallen asking the question and Giro into so answering. Thank you. My concerns usually about these bills and this one in particular is about free speech and access to information, but this bill is also a massive kind of redistribution of wealth from one set of companies to another set of companies. So I think we should just agree that there's no market value here. There's no market process. It's just a legislative um, activity that has to go on. So if the value is essentially coercive, that you know whatever anybody can extract from the other side in the deal, um, I've got this vision of news people sitting around newsrooms posting their stories 24-7 uh, just to get the number of links up. Um, is there anything that you have seen? I'm not, I, am, I know you, you have to kind of pull numbers out of the air, but have you seen anything in that legislation that would restrict or inhibit 
this rather bizarre process that might go on? Um, not that I recall. However, there will be some regulation-making power uh, devoted to heritage and the CRTC, so there could be ways around that through the regulation-making process, but uh, I'm not familiar enough with... I haven't seen regulations, obviously, uh, but no, to my knowledge, the answer is no. So really, that situation could occur? <laughs> In theory, I think it could, but right. the agreements would probably cover that. Now that you've uh, revealed that possibility, I'm sure that Meta and Google would be negotiating that <laughs> in the agreements. I'll be worrying about that. The, uh, and to Senator Melville Deschenes' point, which is, you know, we've seen the, the, the number of people that are scoped in or uh, covered by this organization grow up to 700. So there is no constraint on this. I mean, tomorrow the CRTC could decide that, you know, this group of university students in Regina and their two-page publication are now uh, qualified? Well, my understanding is that it's limited to qualified Canadian journalism organization, and there's some other, like broadcasters, obviously, and some foreign news outlet that have set up a newsroom in Canada. So it's limited by that, but Roland can probably uh, specify if I'm inaccurate. For the time being, when we were preparing the report, we had very little uh, details about the eligibility criteria. It was quite general, broadly speaking. We looked at uh, journalism organizations that were qualified. We got this list from the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency. We added the public and private broadcasters, but the estimate was done at the aggregate level. We didn't take individual media organizations into account. We took aggregated data. In order to look at ownership, we used aggregate data and looked at ownership. Based on the changes I've seen, it's more going to be about indigenous media organizations to be added. But given that these organizations are already under CRTC portfolio, they will be taken under consideration. That information gathering there was really quite smart. Despite having little to go on, it sounds like she was able to gather extremely accurate information and provide really good estimates. They also asked general questions from their Australian counterparts and got some general information as well. So, clearly, the kudos was well-deserved here, actually. Impressive stuff. While the first segment of Hearing 10 was quite informative, the same couldn't be said for segment 2 of Hearing 10. In this final segment, we heard from Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez. Again, Rodriguez is barely aware of his own surroundings at the best of times. If that sounds harsh, well, Rodriguez could do himself a huge favor and stop proving me right. Multiple senators asked Rodriguez a series of questions, hence the whole purpose of such a hearing in the first place. Getting answers out of him, however, was like pulling teeth. Buckle up, because this is an absolutely massive train wreck on the part of Rodriguez. Here's Senator Julie Mabel Deschain, Paula Simons, and Pamela Wallen asking questions, and Rodriguez, uh, 
not answering. Minister, welcome. I'm going to ask you a question on principle. During our study of Bill C-18, some witnesses, including your own department's officials, recognized that there was a value exchange between the media companies and the large platforms. So, of course, content has a value, has, is worth something for the platforms. And the fact that the content is published on platforms has value for the outlets. According to the Australian Bargaining Code, which served as a model, I'm sure you've heard of it, um, a Professor Rob Sims, and I'll quote this in English. Only allowed the arbitrators to recognize the value of news businesses provide the, the platforms with no reference to the value provided by the platforms to the media businesses. But this position was not defensible. The government accepted that the arbitrator had to consider the value flowing both ways. Donc, le code australien stipule clairement the Australian code clearly stipulates that these agreements must consider the monetary value of the agreement as received by each party. Is Does Bill C-18 do the same to your uh, based on what you understand from it? Yes, well, you know, I always say it. What we want to do is set up a bargaining table. A bargaining table is based on free negotiations, and how it works is that there would be the platforms on one side and the media on the other side, and then they would negotiate. The platforms say the fact, uh, say that they share the content on their platforms, and then the media outlets will say that they do all the research work, you know, like you. So then both parties will negotiate based on this situation. But is more specifically, is this a fundamental element of Bill C-18 or is it the fundamental element of Bill C-18 as detailed by the media outlets is the fact that they are looking for a subsidy of 20 to 30 percent. So we're hearing two different rationales here. So I would like to hear from you, Minister, what you want to do with C-18 because there is none, uh, no definition per se. No, I don't want to give a definition. I don't want to talk about a percentage. In Australia, they got 30%, but it's not, 30% wasn't the objective. It could be 24, 32, around 30, you know. I just want the negotiations to be carried out as freely as possible. But what about that? The, how, the value of the negotiations and the information? Well, if you ask me what's the maximum amount possible here under the law, there is none because what will be negotiated individually will be added up and then uh, considered collectively. But we are not telling them that you need to consider several elements because it's not based on the number of hits. It's based on the total value, so we're keeping that vague on purpose. And are you not under, uh, underestimating the value of media dissemination? The Devoir said that 80% of traffic on their website depended on Google. So this isn't um, an obvious fix. You say this is as kind of a one-way relationship. No, there's uh, on both sides, you know. 
so the platforms can say that the media use them to disseminate information and reach people, but how will the media come out on top because the value for platforms is, seems to be under in, in play here as well. Well, you know, it's in small media, it's the case as well. Well, it's not the worth, is no. The criteria require the small media to small media outlets to negotiate as well. You know, currently, I'm just going to make an aside here, but platforms have agreements with certain media outlets, but almost all of these agreements happened after the government announced that it intended to legislate. You know, when you're given a little bit of a nudge, you'll go a little faster. And so these agreements have to happen. These agreements will happen with both official language communities, indigenous language communities. And so, but what about the value? I'm not talking with you about the value. I'm talking to you about the fact that all parties have to sit down and talk. Getting to the bargaining table allows you to talk. Before and they would not have been able to sit down with the broadcast uh, with these platforms, and the media outlets can get can bargain collectively. If you have 250 small media outlets, they can all bargain collectively in order to get better results. Followed by Senator Wallen. My friend Senator Smivaldishan taught me a new word tonight: sharabia. Sharabia. So, je voudrais poser une question. I would like to ask you a question without nonsense. It's clear that they intend to block all Canadian news and the sharing of all Canadian news the moment royal assent is given to this bill. Google has been more oblique, but the threat that they have demonstrated their capacity to do this is very real. What happens if on July 1st, the platforms have disengaged from the Canadian news market and have ceased to share Canadian content. Well, that's, that's the way Facebook would like us to look at it, right? Because what we're discussing now is are we going to back, back down because of the threats? No, it's not a question of backing down. If they, I mean, perhaps this is a question that Mr. Ripley can answer too. If Facebook blocks the sharing of links, will you still compel them to go to arbitration? Well, first, they have to explain why. They have to make that decision. It's a business decision, but they make a lot of money here. There's an impact for them to do that, and also a reputational impact. And then at the end of the day, if that's the case, we'll, we'll analyze what happens. Uh, they, they have my number. They, I told them to reach me. I met with them at the beginning. At the beginning, I met with everyone. Facebook, Google. Facebook, never, they never called me back, I think, to, to, for a meeting, right? After that? No? Not me, huh? No. So they, and I told them, they have my cell phone. Come on. Well, okay, but, so, so, but that, that is not my question. My question is, this entire Rube Goldberg device of a subsidy machine is predicated on the idea that Google and Facebook are going to continue to operate in the Canadian market. Now, maybe this is a big game of chicken. I have certainly expressed to Google and Facebook my belief that if they pull out, they will cut off their noses to spite their faces. I do not think that for them to leave is an is a economically neutral decision. But that is what they claim that they will do. So I want to understand, I want it clearly on the record, if Facebook and Google cease to share Canadian content, 
what happens to C18? Do you then go to TikTok? Do you go to the next platforms down the list? Or, is, or do we just say, well, that was an interesting thought experiment, and now we're not going to do that anymore? No, I think this this is an it's this is not an experiment. This is a very important bill. Um, I think that Facebook are still every pretty much everywhere. They're back out of Australia a little bit. They went back, but it's up to them. It's up to me to explain what what it's it's their decision to make that. I, I'm not going to comment on hypothesis and then start to speculate and then because you know what, I'm never going to make any decision on threats. Never. I never did. I never will. Never. I'm not really what I'm asking. Perhaps Mr. Ripley can answer the question. The bill is silent. It does not name platforms. It doesn't have the words Alphabet or Meta, Google, Instagram are not in the bill. The bill refers to online intermediaries. So in the event that Facebook and Google cease to be meaningful online intermediaries in the Canadian space, would the bill then contemplate looking at Bing, TikTok, Amazon, I mean, whoever are the next major players in terms of Canadian advertising and news links. I'll pass it to, to, to Owen after, but we said it clearly in the bill that they have to be in a dominant situation, dominant, right? And there will be thresholds, there will be regulations, and in the regulations, actually, in the thresholds we're looking at, there's only two. So, and it, so that's are, Facebook, are, that's Facebook and Google. And the rest are way, way far away, right? Very, very, very far away. But I don't know why we're discussing about the threats and, and trying to be scared about, you know, about the threats when... And also, the government has options, Senator. There's other things we can do. And all options oh, are on the what, table, what, believe what, me. What, what, what would they be? The, the options, all, all, the, all of the options in terms of, uh, in terms of advertising, there's different programs. There's all kinds of stuff that we, we do, we decide not to do anymore. Maybe we decide to increase. But those are options will we'll be explained if we get there. But we're not oh, so, there. So, so, like, uh, so the, options would be things like putting government advertising back in local newspapers. But we're, we're, playing, we're playing Facebook's game at this moment. We're, we're discussing their threat, and I'm not making decisions based on threat, Senator, with all due respect. Okay. There's no threatening going hard here tonight, that's for sure. <laughs> Sen Senator Wallen and then Senator Cardoso. Hey, thank you. Um, you already conceded in your comments that, that you weren't afraid to use a little blackmail uh, to threaten, use the, the presence of the bill to... Um, get the carriers to the table or at least in discussions. Um, I've got two or three questions on this. I'll try the first one in terms of um, the money that you think is necessary to subsidize the industry. We've got 300 million uh, supposedly from the platforms, although as you've just said, there's no maximum amount on that and it's kind of an arbitrary figure as we just heard from the PBO. Um, we could see folks sitting in news organizations and posting their stories 24 hours a day just to push that number up. We've got a billion plus for the CBC and at least half a dozen journalistic subsidy programs, the local journalism initiative, the digital news subscription tax credit. Do you have any idea, A, what the cost is already on all of that? And do you see this as, like, is there no ceiling on what you're prepared to give the ailing media industry to survive? Well, if you speak in terms of costs, um, 
like for example, how much would it cost to for this to the CRTC to manage this? That is covered. The money was in the budget. Yeah, no, I'm so, talking about the other programs here that you're already involved in, and the kind of movable 300 million dollars that could be anything. It could be 400 well, or five. Is there any limit? Do you think we should that the government and the taxpayers and the platform should subsidize the ailing news sector? Is there any limit on that? Well, we know the amounts of the program. If you talk about the, the, the tax on, on labor force, that's $600 million. If you talk about the local journalism, that's 70 million uh, over five years. If you talk about the periodical right. fund, we just added 40 million over, over two years, so we know exactly how much money is So is, is there any ceiling? Is invested. Well, that's, yeah, that those amount because they're in the budget, so I cannot spend more than what the budget gives me. So well, those maybe are not the, this year, but we've got the 300 million for this program, which you say... Well, might the, be larger. The, the, this will depend on the negotiation, Senator. Okay. We All don't right. know. You know what? I don't want to be involved in this because I, 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 as a I, as a member of the government, I want to be arm's length. Yeah, but you are involved in it. You put the legislation we, forward. I, I want to come back it. to you. Talk about content having value, and I don't disagree with that. Content has value. That's why advertisers pay for it. That's why consumers subscribe, and they pay for it. But even the Supreme Court of Canada says links don't have commercial value. So this legislation has now created, um, uh, I mean, it's not rooted in the market. You've kind of just declared that these links have value and therefore people have to negotiate over it and come up with some arbitrary um, figure. But there are lots of pressure points in that that aren't realistic. It's not like... Uh, a consumer subscribing and saying that they value this product and so they're prepared to pay for it. There's a lot of potential coercion in this uh, approach under C-18. So I'm wondering if, if, I mean, in light of the Supreme Court, in light of the concerns, the questions raised by Senator Simons, uh, are you concerned about where this might go? I mean, the impact that it might have when it's so... Um, it, it's, there's no market value here. It's not a real thing. It's a contrived thing. Well, it's a real negotiation that takes place between the, the platforms and, and, and the media. And what I was going to say, Senator, is that for me, and I guess for you, all of you too, it's very important that we're arm's length. So the <clears> only <throat> thing we're doing here as a government is putting a table in the middle where on one side you have the tech, big techs and the other side the media. Now, what they come up to in terms of agreement depends on them. As for the rest, as I explained, we know exactly how much we're spending, exactly, to the cent. But, but you're telling the, the platforms and the media companies that they have to somehow create an arbitrary value for this link process, which itself, in and of itself, has no value. Content has value, but we have other ways of, of indicating that. Um, well, subscribers subscribe or advertisers advertise, but links are not, a, well, are not content. But it's the way you access news. Take out the link and you don't access it. But people have been accessing, that's what the internet is, it's yes. to access information without cost. I mean, that, that's why it was, it was an exchange. It was an exchange place. But there will never be a cost for you. There's no cost for, for the people. There's no well, cost, there for, cost for the government. It's, it's a market-based solution. I think it's the right one because it's arm's length from the government. They have to come to agreements and conclusion, and that's it. It's the simplest bill you can have. But, but, it, but it's actually not market-based. That's, that's my question. It the, is. 
the market is if I decide to pay for something that I like, I therefore subscribe to it. Or an advertiser puts ads in a newspaper because they like the market that that uh, offers their particular product. A link doesn't have value, and now you're saying it must have a value. Sit down at the table and figure out what it no, is, but it's even not though it's per, completely arbitrary. But it's not per link, Senator, and also it's not per click or anything like that. It's, it's a general value to answer to the question of Senator Miville Deschain, where they sit down and they, and they negotiate, bringing their own numbers to the table and a free open discussion between business people. But at the end of the day, we have to go back on what we want to do. We want to preserve a free, independent right? Neutral, nonpartisan press. And I think we all agree. We don't disagree on that, any of us, I'm sure, here. Because that's one of the pillars of a democracy. And if that disappears, our democracy disappears. Wow. Just wow. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it just kept going and going and going. Seriously, he didn't answer a single freaking question there. One thing that was notable was that Thomas Owen Ripley was also present in that hearing. Despite Senator's best efforts to allow him to chime in, Rodriguez just kept digging. Eventually, Ripley was permitted to answer questions. What was remarkable was that as soon as Ripley was able to answer questions, it really looked like Senators stopped spinning their wheels and started getting somewhere. Had Rodriguez let Ripley just answer everything, the department's performance would have improved dramatically. At any rate, there was no plan B, despite Senators asking about it. He claimed to have options and said all options are on the table, but refused to elaborate. Honestly, he didn't have any options and refused to even contemplate what the options he thought he had would have been. That's how we got to the government improvising and coming up with last-ditch effort solutions after the bill became law. That along with the platforms announcing that they would follow through with their warned responses. So, quite the finale to these hearings. A really, really dumb finale, but a finale nevertheless. After that, we offered a wrap-up post offering all the necessary links and some final concluding thoughts. Yes, we fell behind in our analysis, but Freezenet has once again become the only site to offer comprehensive gavel-to-gavel coverage of such a critical internet bill. We did it for Bill C-11 and repeated that spectacular journalistic effort for Bill C-18. We powered through exhaustion and writing burnout, but we got through it. In all, this coverage weighed in at an estimated 170,736 words, so longer dissertation levels of quantity. Truth be told, I never want to do that ever again, but it was a project that was well and truly worth it anyway. Again, thank you for being with us through this entire coverage. I'm super happy that others found my coverage useful and informative. Heck, in covering this, I felt like I learned a lot from the different perspectives on this debate too. Happy to have offered the best coverage in these hearings. So, definitely a really eventful month here on FreezeNet. Here are some of the other stories making news this month. A major theme throughout this podcast is, of course, trust in the media. Specifically, how much trust in the major media outlets have been shaken. This month, news from the Globe Mail about CTV really didn't help matters. In an explosive story, Bell Media was reportedly pressuring CTV News to avoid negative coverage of their parent company, Bell Media. Bell Media president Wade Oosterman apparently told CTV journalists that he's not asking them to, quote, shill for the corporation. I'm not saying to distort reality to help. 
Ustman said, but for God's sake, if there is a choice between helping and not helping, help. He offered an example of Bell's financials and said, we sometimes report results and, you know, our results are flat and our profits was up 8% and there is choice between headlines and we report revenues are flat instead of profits are up 8%. Why would we take that negative spin instead of the positive spin? The report added that Usterman described Bell as a, quote, jewel and, quote, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why we are so reticent to embrace that. Uh, pro tip to Usterman... If you're trying to add credibility to CTV news, you're not helping. Now, when we talk about link taxes, what are some of the criticisms of it? The criticisms include that it's unconstitutional. There is no evidence in other jurisdictions that it solved the problems that it set forth to solve. That such legislation is simply being pushed in blind faith that, oh no, things will be different this time. And that it envisions a system that makes no sense on the internet realm. You might be thinking that I'm talking about Bell C-18 right now. Here's the freaky part about this. All of the above criticisms also fit perfectly with the California Journalism Preservation Act, or CJPA, as well. That legislation is currently working its way through the California lawmaking process. Different set of laws, different legal precedences in the court, completely different country, exact same debate. In surveying the CJPA debate, that's what I ended up finding. It was scary how similar the debates were. Finally, there has been no shortage of mainstream news articles and broadcasters decrying the negative impacts of social media. Whether the fears they pushed was real or imagined, no negative story about social media seems to be off limits for the mainstream media. Conversely, positive stories on social media tend to get buried or ignored with only the most limited number of stories even getting a single mention, if at all. You might be thinking that this is an exclusively North American media trend, but as it turns out, this phenomenon isn't exclusive to this continent. TikTok creator Dylan Page found himself in the midst of a similar controversy with British broadcaster ITV News. In the video, Page noted that despite the warm reception and kind words he received when he spoke to the media about creators attracting younger audiences to the news, what ended up airing was a completely different story afterwards. Here's part of Page's response to this story. Buckle up, because this shit just gets wild. So as soon as we open, the first sentence is straight bullets. Now, the fact that you're watching tonight's News at 10 helps confirm TV news is the most important news source for British adults. Well, that was mildly aggressive. And then, before you even have a chance to listen to the report, she quickly links TikTok to China and almost sarcastically says... TikTok, owned by a Chinese company, of course, that insisted it isn't linked to that country's communist rulers. And now, with a framing complete, enjoy our fair and unbiased report. So jumping into where I'm intro and this is so subtle, but God, it's powerful. They say teenagers get their news from TikTok more than anywhere else. And yet Dylan Page is a one-man band reporting to the masses from his flat in Devon. I mean, to make it sound like in between reporting news, I'm cooking up meth in my crack den. I do not live in a flat. I live in a very nice three-bedroom house. And instead of making it feel like it's a dangerous thing that I'm doing all of this by myself, how about we don't treat viewers like they're stupid? And that if a quarter of a billion people choose to watch my videos every month, let's celebrate the fact that
that that many people have become interested in the news. And that it's being done by a one-man band. They then use this chart to show the percentages of people who get their news from social media. Entirely missing everyone aged 25 to 54. And despite them cutting and not showing my answer to misinformation on social media, they play this man's answer, which is overwhelmingly negative. I think it is a worry that young people are being exposed to, to news and to unreliable news and to conspiracies through social media in general, not just TikTok. They then talk more about TikTok's connection with China and frame it like you're getting this news from the app itself. And framing it like that just discredits all of the amazing creators we have on here, including professionals like doctors, dentists, lawyers, journalists, and let's not forget, ITV themselves. So thanks, ITV, for welcoming me into your industry. And how it works over this side is that people vote with the follow button who they think are credible. And you just lost mine. What is so ironic about this is that the media is scaremongering people into believing that the information people get through the internet is, in general, manipulated and pushing conspiracy theories. Yet, at the same time, the news report itself is heavily manipulating information and using conspiracy theories. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. So, definitely a lot of drama happening these days. Let's cool things off and talk about entertainment. Before we get into the video game reviews, I wanted to mention what first impression videos we posted this month. For this month's Steam game, we checked out Follow the Dungeon Guardians. That video can be seen on our site or on YouTube. This month's PlayStation 3 game is Raymond Origins. That video can be seen on our site and on YouTube. This month's Xbox 360 game is Forza Horizon. This particularly popular video can be seen on our site and on YouTube. Finally, this month's PlayStation 4 game is Borderlands 3. That video can be seen on our site and on YouTube. As always, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and turn on notifications to get real-time updates on what videos we've posted. Now, here are the video games we reviewed this month. First up is the PlayStation game, Final Fantasy VIII. A game with a bizarre penalty for leveling up your characters, really touch-and-go level design, and an overly complex card system leaves a lot to be desired. This one flopped with 46%. Next is Burnout Revenge for the PlayStation 2. Many features that made previous installments great are present. The introduction of traffic checking also helps things along. This game ends up with a very solid 74%. From there we played Ratchet & Clank Going Commando for the PlayStation 2. Lots of variety, though the locking system does glitch from time to time. With nothing else to really complain about, this game gets a great 84%. Finally, we played Turok 3 Shadow of Oblivion for the N64. A PSG system that has a real way of killing all the enjoyment from this game. Forgettable music and a downgrading graphical quality really hurt this game. Still, the dual quest tree between the two characters is interesting. This one gets a mediocre 60%. As for music listen to this month, we've got Kim Lucas, All I Really Want, Eiffel 65 Single Remix, Goriella, Walhalla, Vocal Extended, Pearl Jam, Given to Fly, Amit Atasiva, Featuring Monty Wells, Trading Halos, Sunset Remix. Ash, Orpheus. Foo Fighters, My Hero. Madonna, Frozen. Kid Rock, Bow to Ba. And finally, My Chemical Romance, I'm Not Okay, I Promise. So that leads our to pick of the month. This month, our pick of the month belongs to My Chemical Romance, I'm Not Okay, I Promise. Also, be sure to check out Ratchet & Clank Going Commando for the PlayStation 2, Goriella Wahala Vocal Extended, Kim Lucas All I Really Want Eiffel 65 Single Remix, and Kid Rock Bow to Ba. This month was a really good month on the entertainment side. What can I say? 
If you'd like to get on some behind-the-scenes stuff, exclusive content, and early access material, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash freezenet. Through this, you can help me freezenet just that much better, all the while getting some pretty cool stuff in the process. That's patreon.com slash freezenet. Alternatively, you can simply buy us coffee via coffee.com slash freezenet. And that's this month's episode for July 2023. I'm Drew Wilson for FreezeNet. Be sure to check out our website at FreezeNet.ca for all the latest in news and reviews. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Mastodon. Thank you for listening, and see you next month.